Well, I uh, I grew up, and I often share stories about my family. I grew up in a family uh, where the, the sport of golf did not exist. And when I say uh, didn't exist, uh, one time I remember asking my dad if, if he would take me golfing, and he said, that's stupid. And so he was pretty clear uh, that, that golf uh, didn't exist. Uh, but I remember uh, when I was entering middle school, there was a, a farm at the end of our road, and this developer bought it, and he decided that he was going to make it into the newest, coolest golf course in our, in our county. And so uh, every day we would drive past there, you know, making exciting family trips to Walmart or whatever. And uh, we'd go by and I'd see people golfing and see this developing. And, and I'd always, I always, always wanted to golf because golf was, uh, was kind of everything uh, that, that my family wasn't. My, my grandpa, uh, probably like many people's grandpas, didn't, I don't even think he finished high school. And so he, you know, got to like age 15, 16, got a job and, and worked and supported his family. Uh, and, and my dad was, was, you know, he, he went to college, but he had, he had similar hobbies. If you would ask him what his hobbies were, he would say working, you know, and he was, he was just that, that kind of guy just loved to be busy and, and loved to do stuff. And, uh, so things like, like golf just didn't seem to, uh, to fit in with my family. And so I think that's why I always thought it was like this awesome thing. I was like, golf is for cool people. They wear special pants and it costs a lot of money. And, um, I'm from the country, so maybe that'll explain that. Down in Columbus, golf is just what you do, probably, right? Everybody wears special pants all the time. But uh, where I was from, it was, a, it was a big deal. And so in my rebellious years, I decided that I wanted to golf. And so naturally, um, I went to Goodwill and bought a very nice set of clubs and because uh, my, my dad would not pitch in. And uh, I went to a place called Spruce Tree Golf Course. It was, uh, it was nine holes of golf. It was a trailer park, and it was also a storage facility. So it was kind of all three into one. Uh, and I think it was like 450 you could go and golf. And so uh, I, I took myself down there and, and started golfing in, in high school and college and, and uh, had a little bit of beginner's luck and thought it was pretty awesome. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be a businessman someday, going to golf. This is going to be awesome. And, uh, you know, just kept, kept golfing in the next few years. And uh, it, it honestly took me probably like, gosh, seven, seven or eight years uh, till I had graduated college and, uh, one of my best friends that I, I met in seminary, he had golfed in college and he's always like, do you golf? And I just wanted to impress him. I was like, yeah, yeah, I got some clubs, you know, I'd always say something like that. And, um, one day, uh, this other guy that was in our class, he's like, you guys golf. He heard us talking and, uh, he's like, I, I work at a course. I can get us on free, you know? And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one night my friend Josh, my friend Jeff and, and I, uh, after class decided that, that we were going to go golfing. And this was in 2005 and, uh, we started golfing. This was just like a middle of the road course randomly out in Indiana. And, uh, it took me like three holes and, uh, I just, I started thinking, I'm like, man, this isn't fun at all. I mean, anyone that's been golfing probably knows that like you, you set up to, to drive and your drive just goes like 60 yards to the right. And you're like, all right, that stinks. That, all right. All right. And so you, you know, you get out there with like your, your wedge and you go to hit the ball and like, you just hit mud and then you're, you're just mad at yourself and you go to putt and you hit it off the back of the green and it's like rolling down in a Creek somewhere. And, uh, somewhere along the, the line this day, I'm, I'm golfing and I'm just like, I hate this sport. I mean, like. And I realized that hate's a strong word, and I just got there. I'm like, I hate golf. And uh, it's, it's weird when you, you get things for free. Like if someone's ever given you, like, tickets to an Ohio State game and it starts to rain and you're just like, hey, let's go home. I didn't pay for these tickets, you know. Like when you don't pay for something, it changes the accountability to enjoy it. And so I'm out there golfing for free, and um, I'm, like, terrible on hole number one and two and three. And, and finally, I'm just like, I'm not doing this. I didn't pay for this. I don't have to do this. And uh, I was like, Jeff, I'm going to quit. 
He's like, you, just, you don't, you're not having fun. I was like, no, I'm going to quit for life. Like I'm, I'm done with golf. And he like, he loves golf. He used to work in a golf store. Like I said, he golfed in college and he's like, ha, ha, you know, these things, it's funny. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like I'm, I'm done. And so we got to like hole five and I hit a drive and it was like, you know, like off in a pond. I was like, I'm done for life. And I just put my clubs in this cart and he's like, you're serious. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm completely serious. Like golf, golf is, um, it's one of those things that just brings out the worst in me. Like, I like to think that I don't have a terrible temper, but when I'm golfing done, I'm just, I'm, I'm so mad. And like, so just I have this pent up frustration and I, I start to go crazy. And, and so the reason I stopped golfing is because golf is one of those things for me that just, uh, it makes me come unraveled. It's, it's, it's like my, my Achilles heel, if you've ever heard that phrase, or maybe if you wanted to compare me to Superman, which you don't, but I do, um, you, could, you could call it my, my kryptonite. Golf is just one of those things that honestly kind of makes me go crazy, and it's, it's, it's different for, for everyone. I know some of you are like, wow, golf is my greatest joy in life. You know, some people uh, love things, some people hate things, but I think we all have something that, that brings out the worst in us, and, and for me, that's, that's golf. It, I realized it was, a, it was a weak spot, a spot that I could be attacked, and, and uh, just a spot in, in life, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore. And so we're uh, we're starting a, a new series today. We're starting uh, the series called Antiheroes of the Bible, taking a look at at some well known stories, but also taking a look at at some people who who messed up and some people that had struggles, people that that we know their story in the Bible, and we often we put them up on a pedestal and call them heroes. But but a lot of these people we're going to look at, they had they had things that that drug them down. Now, it probably probably wasn't golf, but they all they all had a trigger. They all had something that could tempt them. For some people, it was their pride. For some people, it was their lack of faith, and, and, and for others, it was, it was different things. But everyone has something that uh, has the potential to, to bring them down, has the potential to, uh, to, to tempt them, has the potential to put mistakes in their life. And so as we jump in this story, we're going to be looking at the difference between a hero the difference between an anti-hero and the things that, that we can avoid by, by looking at their story and some lessons we can learn. So I want to uh, invite you to turn to Luke 22 today, Luke chapter 22. And if you have one of the Bibles that has a, a swamp scene on it, that is on page 808. If you have the, uh, the Bible that's more cream-colored, kind of blank on the front, it's page 805. And uh, we want to uh, jump in there and, and look at a passage. We're going to be in, in verse 31. And the context of this passage is that uh, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus is coming to a close. He has been uh, performing miracles and, and, and traveling with the disciples and, and spreading the gospel, obviously. And uh, that, that ministry of his is, is coming to a close. Uh, Judas, one of his disciples, has, has gone behind his back and kind of arranged to, to have him uh, killed and, and crucified. And, and he's going to be the one who betrays him and, and turns him over and uh, uh, the disciples and, and Jesus are getting ready to uh, partake in, in the Passover. And so uh, we're going to jump into this chapter, uh, page 808, 805, depending on the Bible you have. But this is a conversation that is happening uh, as Jesus is, is talking to Peter and talking about his faith and, and talking about the future. Uh, there's a lot of things happening as Jesus' ministry winds down. And so this is a conversation between Jesus and, and Peter. And this is the same uh, man, Peter, who, who Jesus said, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. And so this is a guy that I think sometimes we, we do build up to be a hero. Uh, and yet, as our uh, spoiler name for this series told us, sometimes heroes are, are anti-heroes too. And so this is uh, Luke 22. Verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you 
Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. The rooster will not crow tomorrow morning until you have denied three times that you even know me. This is not an average conversation that happens over dinner. Obviously, this is, this is a little more intense. This is uh, during the Passover, and Jesus has been hinting to the fact that, uh, that, that his, his ministry was coming to a close, and, and uh, obviously this conversation starts pretty intense. He, he you know, is, is talking about the future. He's talking about faith, and, and he says to Peter, um, you know, I, I want you to, to know me. I want you to follow me, and it, it's, uh, it's probably, like I said, not something that you just mentioned over over some Chipotle, but, but this, uh, this conversation uh, takes a turn when, when Peter steps up to the plate wanting to be awesome, wanting to, to, to pledge his uh, undying affection to, to Jesus. He says, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to, I'm ready to die for you. That's probably the, the greatest thing you could say to someone that you love, probably the greatest thing that you could say uh, to someone that you care for. You've probably, I don't know if you've ever said that. Anyone ever said that on a first date? Like, hey, if we go to prison at the end of this date, I'm here for you, babe. It's not, not something we say, right? And yet, yet this, is what, this is what Peter says. He's saying, Jesus, we've traveled around. I've seen who you are. I've seen your miracles. I know your character. I know why you came to this earth, and I know what you're going to do, and I am on your team. I am completely and wholeheartedly on your team. I want to live for you. And it might seem like a slap in the face, but Jesus basically turns that that phrase on its, on its uh, face there and says, uh, to be honest, you're going to deny me three times in the next couple hours. Before the rooster crows, before tomorrow morning, things are about to get hectic and crazy, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. So that's kind of like uh, telling someone you love them for the first time and they're like, you don't love me. You don't even know what love is. I mean, we've, we've probably all been rejected in some way or, or some conversation like that. And so Peter is reaching out. He's saying, I love you. I love you this much. I'm going to follow you. I'd go to prison for you. And Jesus is like, mm, not, not quite. All right. And so this is, this is the conversation they're having. That's verses 31 to, to 34. Let's go ahead and, and skip down to uh, verse 54. And uh, we'll, we'll catch in on, check, check in on this story. Most of you know this story, but just want to, uh, to highlight it again. This is what is said in verse 54. So they arrested him, talking about Jesus, after Judas had uh, betrayed him, it says, So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's residence. And Peter was following far behind. So there's already an indicator. Maybe Peter's not uh, as awesome as he, he said he would be. He said, I'll go to prison for you. I'll do anything for you. His buddy gets arrested. They're taking him away. And uh, he's not like, hey, that's my friend Jesus. You can't do that. It says he's, he's following behind, not just behind, but far behind. He's kind of tailing him, just watching this whole thing unfold and happen. The guards lit a fire in the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know the man. There's number one. He denies Jesus. He doesn't just deny Jesus because there's a threat. It says... It's a girl, right? I mean, how many, how many men in the room have, have used that as a, as a put-down term with their friends? Maybe growing up, you're like, you're such a girl, all right? Not meant to be a put-down, but usually that's, the, that's like the wimpiest thing a boy can think of, right? So they, used to, they learned to, to use the, the term girl in that way. So Peter, in this moment, 
must be terribly intimidated by this small girl. She must really be a threat to him, right? And so he denies this guy that he just said, I'll go to prison for you. I love you forever. He's like, nope, never, never met that guy. Never heard of this Jesus guy. I don't even know the man. Verse 58 says this. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter replied. I love that translation. It's just like instantly like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Just he's, he's saying it. It's the second time he denies him. He's making it clear where his heart is here. And verse 59 says, about an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of Jesus' disciples because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And as soon as he said these words, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered what the Lord had said. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. And Peter left the courtyard crying bitterly. Peter is the, the rock that uh, the church was going to be built on. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's in the inner circle, and he's someone that, that we look up to and someone that performed miracles and proclaimed the gospel and, and help lay the foundation of the church and, and do so many incredible things through the New Testament and through Scripture. And yet in this moment, a story that we're probably familiar with, he's not the, the most manly man. He gets confronted and asked about his faith and asked about who he is, and, and he denies that he knows Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Different conversations, different people, different circumstances, different situations, but each time the common thread is not only is he not following Jesus, not only is he not glorifying Jesus, not only is he not talking about Jesus or defending Jesus, he won't even say that he knows who Jesus is or associate with him or admit that he's from the same region or town. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. There's a book, and I think I mentioned it a, a few months ago, uh, that, that raises the concept that sometimes in, in moments of weakness, Christians function like atheists, right? An atheist being someone who does, who does not believe in God. Sometimes as Christians, there are moments that we basically live like an atheist. There are moments that we say, you know what? For these next 30 seconds, for these next five minutes, for these next 10 minutes, for these next two weeks, for spring break, just for this block of time, I'm, I'm going to live like I, I don't know who God is or like I don't believe him or like I don't associate with him. I don't even know who Jesus is. And we, we, we learn to be kind of a, a practical atheist or a Christian atheist and we, we subtract God from a certain spot in our lives. We have temporary atheism. So why would, why would Peter do that? See, someone, someone had, had gotten his, his Achilles. Someone had had shown him kryptonite. I don't, I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe for him it was fear. Maybe golf wasn't the trigger that sent him off the deep end. But I think maybe, maybe someone just saying, hey, you're, uh, you're the Jesus guy. Yeah, the, the one that they're, uh, they're getting ready to put on trial. You're, you're one of his. And in a moment where he was embarrassed or scared, a moment where he was being accused, a moment where he, he felt weak, he became a, a temporary atheist. He became someone who, not only did he not defend Christ, not only did he not know Christ, he, he ran the other way, looked the other direction. His, his trigger, his Achilles, his thing that made him give in was fear. Fear was the thing that, that made him turn back. Sometimes we have to be conscious of our weak areas 
our own personal weak areas in our lives so that our faith can stand against temptation. We need to be conscious of weak areas in our lives so that our faith can stand against temptation. And for all of us, our areas of weakness are different. Some of us are afraid of of comparison or association. We're afraid of standing up for our faith. Others are afraid of different things. Some people are afraid of, of failure. And the fear of failure is what drives them and pushes them to compromise their faith and not associate with Jesus. It's what pushes them to to cut corners at their job. It's what pushes us to do different things so that we're not glorifying God, so that we're we're hiding from, from his presence in our lives. We're running from him. We're making compromises and giving in to temptation. I want to take us to uh, another story. It's in Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25. It's on page 20 in, uh, in both of the Bibles that are uh, in our seats. Genesis chapter 25 will uh, we'll be in verse 19. As we continue to push this thought, we have to be conscious of weak areas so that our faith can stand when we're tempted. Genesis 25 verse 19. It says, This is the history of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham is the one that God promised he would make a nation out of. And, and so this is early on in the Old Testament in a very foundational passage. It says it's the story of, of Isaac, the son of Abraham, verse 20. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. This is a sidebar, but maybe we shouldn't bother our friends that they have to get married when they're young, right? Right there. Someone got married at 40, okay? It can still happen. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban. Isaac pleaded with the Lord to give Rebekah a child because she was childless. So the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and his wife became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two rival nations. One nation will be stronger than the other. The descendants of your older son will serve the descendants of your younger son. And when the time came, the twins were born. The first was very red at birth. He was covered with so much hair that one would think he was wearing a piece of clothing. So they called him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they called him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. It goes on to to say this in verse 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open fields, while Jacob was the kind of person who liked to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau, in particular because of the wild game he brought home. But Rebekah favored Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home exhausted and hungry from a hunt. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of the red stew you've made. Verse 31 says this, Jacob replied, All right, but trade me your birthright for it. Trade me your birthright. That's a, that's a huge deal. If you, if you don't have some context in Jewish culture, that is everything. The older son was the heir to the family, was, was in the, the line. He would get the money, the status, all the different things. And so that's kind of like saying, give me your inheritance. Give me, give me everything. Give me your retirement. Give me your home. Give me your status. Give me your future. And so when he says, give me your birthright because you're hungry for some stew, it probably seems like a pretty crazy thing. But that's what he says to his brother. You've been out all day. You're starving. You want, you, want, you want some stew? Give me your birthright. 
Look, I'm dying of starvation, verse 32 said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? So Jacob insisted, well then, swear to me right now that it is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all of his rights as the firstborn to his younger brother. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and went about his business, indifferent to the fact that he had given up his birthright. Esau was was weary, and he was distracted, and he was confused, and he was tempted, and he was weak in this moment, and he wasn't aware of his moment of of weakness, an area that he could be tempted in, and he made a a stupid decision. We look at him, and, and we think, wow, a birthright seems like a big deal. It's your inheritance. It's your name. It's, it's the things that you do because of your family. Who would give that up for soup? I don't even like lentil stew, right? Why, why would you give up your birthright? Why would you give up that money? Why would you give up your status? Why would you give up everything? Couldn't he, couldn't he think a little clearer? Couldn't he just wait 10 minutes and have some mac and cheese or go talk to someone else? I mean, wasn't there, wasn't there a way that this could be avoided? It seems so simple and, and so stupid. But how many of us have, have given up what God wants for us? How many of us have given up God's blessing? How many of us have given up what God wants to do in our lives, what he's called us to in a moment of weakness because we're tempted? How many of us have, have made a similar decision? And maybe, maybe not for, for some stew, but how many of us have compromised what God is calling us to because we're tempted, because we're weak, and because we haven't been honest and, and been conscious of that weak area and given that over to God? For some people... The opposite sex is the, the thing that gets them to, to compromise. I've known people who, unfortunately, sex has, has been that, that thing that, that trips them up, that, that tempts them, that makes them compromise. It's, it's an area that they've, they've just felt weak. For some people, like we mentioned, it's, it's money and status. And so they have one life during, during uh, the, the hours that they're home, but they go to work and they become a different person. They become cutthroat. And they become all business, and they they care a lot about money and about status and about accomplishment, and that's the area that they're tempted. That's the area that they're weak. That's the area that they compromise. For some people, it's a different thing. It's it's it might just be family that makes you compromise. Maybe your your family is 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 dear to you, and you you love them, and so you have trouble living out your faith around them. Your family has, has always gotten together and always partied and always acted a certain way and talked a certain way. And so when you're around them, you're, you're weak and you're, you're tempted and you compromise and you, you give up what God is, is drawing you to and what God has for you. We're doing this, this series called Anti-Heroes. And to talk about anti-heroes, you have to talk about the concept of a hero. Heroes are, are not perfect people. I think the, the more that, that culture goes on and we see a new superhero movie made like every two minutes and then they remake it six years later and two years later and one year later, I think we're, we're seeing the, the concept of superhero and of hero kind of redone. I think it was uh, two Spider-Man reboots ago, but it was, it was like the first time I'd ever seen a hero uh, be, be vulnerable. I remember the, the Superman of the 1950s. That guy was like perfect, right? He was just in black and white and stuck his chest out there and foam bullets would bounce off him and that's all you knew. He was super. And then we saw, you know, Superman in the, in the 80s, he had problems with kryptonite. And I remember that the Spider-Man movie that I'm talking about, there was a moment that Spider-Man was, was just done. 
and uh, the citizens of New York were like, hey, why don't we just throw rocks at the bad guy and, and save Spider-Man? You're thinking, that's, that's not a hero, someone that needs someone to come to his rescue and someone that needs someone to defend him. Everyone has weaknesses. Everyone has areas that they're, they're able to be tempted, they're, they're able to be attacked. Everyone has an Achilles heel or something that can drag them down. Heroes are just conscious of those things and willing to work around those things. Superman knows that, that kryptonite is not his friend, so he avoids it. Superman knows that kryptonite is not a good thing, and so he does what he can to not be around it, not cross paths with it, not let it make him weak. Anti-heroes are people who don't admit that they have weakness. Anti-heroes are people who don't know their temptation. Anti-heroes are people who are not aware of their weak areas, and they let themselves fall. They let themselves be tempted. They let themselves be drugged down. They let themselves be taken off of the path, taken off of the quest of what God has before them and what God has ahead of them. So what's an area of, of weakness in your life? What's an area or a way that, that you're tempted? What's something that, that you should be conscious of? Not that you want to glorify that thing, but, but just an area that as you're wired, as, as your life story has unfolded, something that, that makes you vulnerable, something that should be avoided. Peter is probably a guy who shouldn't be around intense conversations and peer pressure, right? Maybe he's a guy that should travel in numbers. So when someone says, hey, don't you know that Jesus guy? If he has his friend next to him that's like, yeah, yeah, Peter, we know Jesus, remember? He can say, yes, yes, I do know Jesus. He's probably not someone that, that should go to uh, parties in high school alone, right? Because he's not good at standing on his own. He might be really good at speaking. He might be really good at, at some other things, but he's not good in those moments at standing on his own. Esau is probably not a guy who should fast, right? He's, he's just not good with hunger. And when he puts himself in that situation, it makes him compromise in different ways and, and different things, and, and he can't think clear. Sometimes we have to be conscious of the, the ways that, that uh, we know that we can stumble. We have to be conscious of our weak areas so that we can stand against temptation, so that we can, we can walk toward what God has for us. There's a couple things that, that we have to do if we're going to stand against temptation. And the first one of, of those things is, uh, is, is to be honest, be conscious of, of what our weak areas are. I know that uh, growing up in a family of, of all boys, I think it was... It was probably like 15 years till I knew that I was allowed to have a weak area, right? Because growing up, it's like, Mom, can I have a Band-Aid? Nope, we don't have those. We just, we, 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 literally, I remember when I was like 14, we ran out of our first box of Band-Aids, and we were like, let's not even buy another box. Let's just probably, we won't need those anymore. And in my, in my family, I don't know if we're weak, but I feel like every two years we're going through a box of Band-Aids. But in, growing up, we, we, we just didn't show weakness, and so as a, as a culture, as, as people, we, we don't often think that. We don't often say, hey, you know what I'm terrible at? Or you know where I'm often tempted? You know what really drags me down? Do you want to know a weakness of mine? No, we, we make resumes and we, we like spin things to make them sound incredible. So rather than saying we're, we're an introvert and we don't like to talk to people, we say things like analytical thinker, right? We, we spin even, even the negatives or even our weaknesses and we make them into positives. But sometimes... As, as God's people, as people that he's gifted and created just as he wants, we have to admit, this is who I am, and this is a weakness of mine. This is something I struggle with. This is an area that I can be tempted in. We just need to be honest with that. 
So we need to be honest with ourselves where our areas of weakness are, where we struggle, where we're tempted. We need to be honest, and in some way, we need to say those things to, to other people. We mentioned today that, that we want to be a community. We want to be the church. We want to be the body of Christ. We want to know each other and love each other and care for each other. And that doesn't mean that, that we're going to form a line today and just have everybody come up one by one and say, these are my sins that I committed this week. I, I just want to tell you all, because it's so practical and comfortable, I thought I would just yell them out here from the stage. No, but we want to be involved in each other's lives. We have movement groups so that we can do that, so that we can know each other intimately and, and break up into smaller pockets of people and, and share life. And as we do that, we should be comfortable saying, you know what, when I'm at work, sometimes I act this way. I know that, that you guys think I'm a Christian and, and I, I want to honor God with my life, but there are a lot of times that when I'm around this group of people and when I have this pressure to provide for my family, this is who I become. Can you, can you pray for me and can you hold me accountable to that? Or maybe you can say, you know what? Sometimes I go out on the weekends and, and I end up doing things that, that I don't want to do when I hang around with this group of people and I need you guys to, to ask me how my behavior has been. I need you to ask me who I've been hanging out with and where I've been going. This is a, a way that, that I'm tempted in a way that I find weakness, a way that I stumble. We need to be conscious with our weakness conscious of the things that, that make us stumble and, and make us mess up. But we also need to share those things. James 5 tells us that we have to confess the, the ways that we're, we're dropping the ball, the ways we're messing up, the ways that we're sinning to each other because as the church, we can strengthen each other, we can hold each other up, we can support each other, and we can keep each other accountable. We have to be conscious of our weak areas so we can strengthen our faith in times of temptation. So be aware of where you're weak. Be aware of, of the ways that you can be tempted. And think about how you can share those with people. It might not be natural. It might not be automatic. It might not be something that you want to do. But God has given us to each other as the body of Christ. And so we're supposed to care for each other. And that doesn't just mean a secret handshake on Sundays or like a high five if you see someone from your church at Kroger. It doesn't just mean being nice. It doesn't just mean cooking meals for people. It means truly caring for each other. And there's nothing more loving that you can do than knowing an area where someone has a, a weakness, than knowing a way that, that maybe they're struggling to honor Christ and, and holding them up and helping them do that, helping them make that happen. That's what, what love is, and that's what we want to be. We want to be conscious of our weak areas so that we can be heroes to each other. Anti-heroes are, are people who don't admit that they have weakness, don't admit that they're tempted, and don't admit that they have problems. Anti-heroes are, are people who, in moments of, of weakness, deny Christ and shy away from living for him. Anti-heroes are, are people who give up the blessing, give up the calling that he's put on their life because they take their eyes off of him. We want to be heroes for each other and push each other to know God. You guys pray with me. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for examples in the Bible, Lord. I know that uh, sometimes I feel like I uh, can't go a, a week or an hour a day without messing up. And as funny as it sounds, it's it's good to be reminded, Lord, that, that the, the heroes of our faith and, and people that we see in Scripture, they messed up too. Lord, life isn't about us and life isn't about them. Life and Scripture are about you. 
and they're about your story of redemption. It's about you sending your son to save us, to strengthen us, and to give us life. So God, as we, uh, we want to live for your son, as we want to honor you, help us to be conscious of the areas in our life that we're, we're weak in, the areas in our life that we're often tempted in. Lord, help us to be conscious of our, our Achilles heel, of our kryptonite, of the things that can drag us down. Lord, not just to be conscious of that and honest with ourselves, but help us, help us to share that in some way. Lord, it may not be the most natural thing, but we want to live in community and we want to practice real love in each other's lives, God. So help us to be honest. Help us to be open. Help us to support each other and, and love each other and restore each other when we mess up. Lord, help us to, to push each other, to pray for each other, and to be involved in each other's lives, Lord, so that we can be the body of Christ, so that we can be the church, Lord, so that we can be heroes, heroes for you, Lord. God, I pray that uh, you'll help us just to, to reflect on that today, reflect on that now as we worship, reflect on that this week, and Lord, even reflect on that as we approach this fall and the, the launching of, of movement groups and being involved in community, Lord. I know that there are people in the room who maybe have been avoiding community. Help them to jump into community and embrace that, Lord, not because they're perfect, but because they want to honor you and they want people to help them do that. God, help us to be challenged by your word and, and want to push to, to be heroes, Lord. Pray that if there's someone in the room that may may be called to, to lead a group, to apprentice as a leader in a group, Lord, or just join a group for the first time, I pray that over these next few weeks, Lord, that you will unfold that in their heart and you'll give them the courage to walk toward that. God, thank you for today and thank you for the chance just to be together with your church and be in your presence. It's in your name I pray. Amen.